Calvin Coolidge was born on the 4th of July, 1872, in Plymouth Notch, Vermont. He died in 1933, just a few years after leaving the presidency, and he's buried on top of a hill in his small hometown near the Green Mountains. His body rests silently beside many others in his family, including his 16-year-old son who died in the White House. This is William Jenny, the regional administrator with the Vermont Division for Historic Preservation. And we are standing in front of President Coolidge's gravesite here at the Plymouth Notch Cemetery. It is a very simple gravesite. It's on a steep hill. Uh, this land was too steep to farm, so they put it to another practical use. Notice on the gravestone itself, it says his name with his birth and death dates, but nothing else to indicate anything special other than the presidential seal at the top. Some people are surprised to see such a simple gravesite for a president, but it's very appropriate for him. He did say in his autobiography that uh, we draw our presidents from the people, I came from them. I wish to be one of them again. For this episode, I have a special tour guide. So with me in the studio is Steve Perlstein. Hi. Hi. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning economics columnist for the Washington Post. And Steve has also been my mentor here. He started the On Leadership section. We've, um, we've had a lot of conversations about leadership over the years. So one thing that we're going to explore in the episode is how his legacy has changed over time and also how it's a lot more nuanced than this image of Silent Cal. Here we go. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post. And I'm Steve Perlstein, also with The Washington Post. (laughs) And this is the 29th episode of Presidential. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you is based which will live in infamy. All right, Steve. So Calvin Coolidge, he was in the White House from 1923 when Warren Harding died until 1929. And he's been treated for many of the decades that followed his time in the White House as basically a caricature of a weak president. But more recently, something has happened with his legacy where he's become a admired conservative icon. So in order for us to understand and explore this counter narrative that has begun to spring up about him, why don't you first, Steve, just uh, walk us through what the traditional narrative of Calvin Coolidge has been over the years? So the stick figure portrait of Coolidge is, is first that he was a man of very few words, silent Cal. It was said that uh, when he opened his mouth, a moth flew out. <laughs> and there's the story uh, of the woman sitting next to him at a dinner party who said, Mr. President, my friend bet me that I couldn't get you to say three words here tonight to which the president is said to have immediately replied, you lose. So his quietness, his parsimony with words uh, was part of it, silent Cal. But also, not only did he not say much, but that he didn't do anything, um, that he was the, the, uh, the original of the do-nothing um, presidents. So said nothing, did nothing, was ridiculously conservative um, in his view of government, basically best 
thing for government to do is to get out of the way. And he's, you know, also viewed as someone um, who was lazy, um, took naps uh, every afternoon, was really just an accidental president. Uh, the editor of The Nation um, wrote upon his assuming the presidency, which, which he did because of the death of his predecessor, Harding, I doubt if the presidency has ever fallen into the hands of a man so cold, so narrow, so reactionary, so uninspirational, so unenlightened, or who has done less to earn it than Calvin Coolidge. And, uh, at least certainly among um, the sort of more liberal academic crowd, that that has been the view of Calvin mm -hmm. Coolidge. Well, and he also precedes the Great Depression. And I mean, there there has been kind of a storyline about his presidency played some key role in right. setting us up for that. It was his inaction. Um, it was his kowtowing to the business interests um, that allowed the Roaring Twenties to roar, that allowed the, the great stock market bubble to get created. It's this excessive period um, of laissez-faire that caused the Great Depression. And in a sense, Coolidge is this sort of anti-FDR. If you think the New Deal was great, if you think the New Deal was the thing that modernized the United States and set it on the on the course to become the greatest power in the world mm -hmm. and, and the greatest society in the world, um, then you have to dislike, you have to make fun of Calvin Coolidge because he, he was... He was he was the, the one who was the opposite <laughs> who set up um, the things that led to the Great Depression. So there was a there was a lot of sort of politics involved, I think, in in ridiculing Calvin Coolidge. Mm -hmm. So there's been this movement underway, though, uh, particularly in conservative circles, to really paint a new portrait of Coolidge. And so, Steve, you decided to look into this new portrait for the episode. And you did three interviews. One is with a former presidential candidate who thinks Coolidge was, in fact, a skilled politician. Uh, another interview you did was with a professor who gives more context to why Coolidge developed this silent persona. And the third conversation you had was with a biographer who argues that Coolidge actually does have a pretty strong economic legacy. So who's this first interview with, Steve? Um, among those who's really come to appreciate Coolidge's skill is another former Massachusetts politician who I've known actually most of my life. Like Coolidge, um, he served as a member of the Massachusetts legislature. Like Coolidge, he served as governor of Massachusetts. And like Coolidge, he ran as a candidate for president of the United States. And that man is? <laughs> Mike Dukakis. <laughs> All right, so let's take a listen. Um, well, thanks for doing this. Good to be with you. Um, Calvin Coolidge became vice president and then... President Harding died unexpectedly in office, and he became president. And a lot of people uh, at that time, you know, barely knew who they was, and they never expected that. You have looked at his history, and you've concluded that he really wasn't so accidental. Talk about Calvin Coolidge as a politician, as a Massachusetts politician. Nobody gave this to Coolidge. He was a kid from Vermont who went to Amherst College, settled in Northampton, and um, in his own interesting way, in a Democratic Irish Catholic ward of Northampton, went out, as did I, rang every single doorbell and knocked on every door in his district, 
and was elected to the Massachusetts legislature and subsequently went on to be elected to the Senate to become the Senate president and then lieutenant governor and then governor. And so our career paths in many ways were really quite similar. And he was also a grassroots politician, uh, spent lots of time out with people and uh, was remarkably progressive. We think of Coolidge these days being a conservative guy, but he was a very progressive governor and part of the progressive movement of the time. Um, and so as a good Republican, progressive Republican, uh, Coolidge actually supported women's suffrage. Uh, he supported the right to join unions. He supported legislation for shorter work weeks and child labor laws and minimum wages. He supported the idea of an old age pension, what we now know as Social Security. Strongly um, for that. And as the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor, strongly supported universal health insurance for the people of Massachusetts. In fact, one of his friends got a hold of him and said, Cal, aren't you going a little overboard here? But people like Coolidge at the time thought that working Americans and their families ought to have access to decent health care. And he said so. So his, his record on labor issues was was uh, so good that, in fact, he was uh, asked to mediate a, a big strike in Lawrence in 1913. Talk about that. The IWW strike was one of the great uh, labor struggles in this country, as well as in the state of Massachusetts, and it wasn't going anywhere, and it was very tough, and it was very angry, and it was Coolidge, as Senate president, who went up to Lawrence and basically told those mill owners that they ought to pay their workers another 25 cents an hour, and 25 cents an hour in those days was a lot of money. We don't think of Coolidge as somebody who would do that kind of thing, and point of fact, he did, and again, it was another reason why I think uh, he was so popular. You know, it appeared... It appeared as if it was an accident that he got nominated for vice president because the two leading contenders um, basically fought to a draw. He became president because President Harding died unexpectedly. But in politics, is is that luck, or do you do you essentially make your own luck in politics? It's a little bit of both. He never would have been there had it not been for the fact that he had carved out a very impressive record both as a legislator and a governor, probably because he was the governor in charge of the state's response to uh, the Boston police strike, which was, as you can imagine, national news and uh, very important, where Coolidge, who was a strong labor guy, was extremely reluctant to step in and, in effect, to break the union, but just felt that he had to do so. That gave him uh, enormous national publicity. Without the Boston police strike, uh, he might never have been a candidate for vice president. The, the strike got out of hand, did it not? I mean, things got pretty uh, dicey there in Boston for a while. He tried, very, he tried very hard to mediate it. He had good relationships with unions generally, really worked to try to settle it, and uh, couldn't do it, and only then said that there was no right to strike in effect against the public interest. But it wasn't for lack of trying to settle that thing before, in fact, Boston discovered that it was unprotected. Uh, Mobs were ransacking department stores in downtown Boston. And uh, at that point, Coolidge had to call out the National Guard, and he did. Interestingly, after this strike was over, after it had been broken, and the striking policeman um, had been fired, he actually spent some time and effort trying to get them other jobs. But he didn't give them their jobs back. And uh, uh, that was something that Ronald Reagan 
uh, mentioned when he fired the air traffic controllers uh, quite famously in the uh, early 1980s when they went out on strike and he essentially uh, asserted the same rule that nobody has the right to strike against the public interest. Any place, any time, Buck. What's the job of Senate president like in the Massachusetts legislature? It's one of the three most important jobs of state government, the others being the governor and the Speaker of the House. He may sound and look decisive, but he's got to um, create consensus among his members. Otherwise, he won't get anything done. And I think uh, Coolidge was a nice combination of that. Uh, Principled, uh, strong views, quite progressive, but also somebody who understood that you've got to talk with your members, listen to your members, be responsive to your members, and he was. Democrats as well as Republicans. And it says a lot about his ability to reach out to people, to bridge differences, to um, encourage and persuade people to work together on things. And again, that's a side of Coolidge that we don't hear much about when it comes to his national career. Okay, so Harding dies. Coolidge finds out he finds he's going to be he's president. He actually visiting his father um, back home in Plymouth Notch. And uh, his father, being a justice of the peace in Vermont, um, actually swore him in by candlelight. They did not have uh, electricity at the house. And they found out because uh, someone called the general store in Plymouth Notch and someone ran over from the general store to the Coolidge house to inform him that he had become president of the United States. So this is 1923, the year that Coolidge becomes president. Yeah. And we already heard from your conversation with Michael Dukakis about how Coolidge was possibly more prepared for the presidency and a more skilled political operator than history has usually given him credit for. Um, So what about his character and his leadership style? Did you find out, Steve? Um, Actually, before you do that, I know you listened to some of the episodes, Steve, where um, I asked this question, normally ask this question of historians, but since you did all the interviews, I'm going to ask it of you. All right. Um, So I've been set up with this guy, Calvin Coolidge... What do you think, Steve? Like, what should I expect? What's this, uh, what's my date going to be like with him? Quiet. <laughs> You're going to have to do most of the talking. And I'm going to have to pay? Uh, <laughs> no, no, he would never let you pay, but oh, okay. he, he wouldn't spend very much either. <laughs> um, probably not going to drink too much, although it, actually, I, I have to tell you, Lily, his biggest vice uh-huh. is he loved to smoke cigars. So I don't know whether you want to go on a date with a guy who likes to smoke cigars. He used no, to not really. But he, he wasn't he wasn't all that playful. I will tell you one thing that if you had gone out with Calvin Coolidge and he was he sort of got sweet on you, he could be a very jealous uh, suitor and not all that respectful. I have to tell you this, Lily. I'm not sure he'd be your sort of guy when he decided not to run for re-election. Uh, Grace Coolidge, his wife, mm-hmm. um, heard about it from the press. He didn't even. Oh talk my God! With, he didn't even talk with her uh, about it. So this image of him as a silent president really is accurate then. There is one historian um, who I also talked to, Lily, who thinks there's more to the story of Silent Cal. The story of the Coolidge presidency is also one of a great personal tragedy involving the death of the president's favorite son, Calvin Jr. And according to Robert Gilbert, what to some appeared was a lack of energy on Coolidge's part, or at least a lack of interest in government, might in fact have been a fairly serious case of a mental illness. Robert Gilbert is a 
Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Northeastern University. Uh, Professor Gilbert, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Um, Calvin Coolidge is known uh, perhaps best as Silent Cal, a sort of do-nothing president who um, took long naps and went away from Washington in the summer for three months at a time uh, and believed that the government that did the least was the best kind of government. You suggested that that is a misunderstanding of him. I do think that uh, Calvin Coolidge is a very different kind of president from most other presidents. Uh, Most presidents, I think, have been of the same type throughout their presidency. They were passive or they were active throughout their entire presidency. But in Calvin Coolidge's case, at the beginning of his term, uh, he was a very active president. He was very deeply involved in his administration. He was very concerned, very interested in what uh, what uh, was going on in the country and what was going on in the world. He was very much in charge and very much in control of his own administration. Like what kinds of uh, things did he propose during that year? Well, we tend to think of Calvin Coolidge as being very, very passive and very, very uh, conservative. But uh, what he proposed to Congress was, uh, was, was not conservative. Uh, he did recommend a tax cut, and he's known for that. Uh, but he did much more than that. He urged the expansion of the civil service system. He urged the enactment of environmental legislation, oil slick laws. He urged the establishment of reformatories for women and young men serving their first prison term. He urged that Congress provide expanded health care for veterans, This is not the image that we have typically of Calvin Coolidge. Uh, He urged that Congress set up a separate cabinet-level department of education and welfare. Coolidge made 30 identifiable requests to Congress during that first annual message. And did most Uh, of those things get enacted into law? A number of them did, yes. A number of them did. Talk about his work work ethic. Was he somebody that uh, goofed off a lot or... uh... Uh, no. Uh, well, again, his presidency is, is uh, sort of uh, bifurcated. At the beginning of his term, he worked very, very hard. Uh, Mrs. Coolidge, for example, said he's always working. He's always reading. He's always getting ready for a meeting. But when the uh, crisis of his uh, life uh, uh, descended on him, uh, namely the death of his favorite son, he had two sons, uh, John Coolidge and Calvin Coolidge, Jr. Uh, when Calvin Coolidge, Jr. died in the summer of 1924, uh, Coolidge, uh, his whole uh, behavior changed. His whole personality changed. I feel quite uh, certain that he was really a clinically depressed president. And a number of psychiatrists agree with, with what I've suggested. He showed the signs of clinical depression. In fact, for the rest of his term, he never really recovered. So let's go back a bit and talk about how Calvin Jr. Uh, died. Yes. In 1924, Coolidge's uh, two sons lived in a boarding school. And uh, in June, they came back to the White House to spend the summer, or at least some weeks of the summer, with their parents. And every day, the boys would play tennis. One day, John Coolidge, the oldest son, arrived at the tennis courts, but his brother wasn't there. And John went back to the White House and asked his mother, where is Calvin? And they went up to the brother's bedroom, and the brother was sick. Uh, he, he said, I don't feel well. They called the White House physician, and the White House physician immediately came. And the White House physician said to uh, Coolidge's son, 
What do you mean uh, you don't feel well? Uh, Calvin Coolidge Jr. said, um, I don't know, but I have a blister on my toe. Uh, I got a blister on my toe after playing tennis uh, well, the last two days. And the doctor said, let me see the blister. And as soon as the doctor saw it, he was concerned because the blister was large. It was very deep red. It seemed to be infected. And also, he saw that there were red streaks running up the boy's leg. And he immediately said, the president's son is suffering from blood poisoning. And there were, were no treatments at the time. And within a few days, the boy died. And this was the crisis of Coolidge's life. He blamed himself for the boy's death. Why would he uh, blame himself? He said, if I weren't president, he would not have been playing on the White House tennis courts. It's my fault that he died. Of course it wasn't. But he really blamed himself for the boy's death. Uh, if I hadn't wanted to be president, my son would be alive. My favorite son would be alive. There were two Coolidge presidencies. One of them saw Calvin Coolidge as a very activist, very involved, very competent president. But the second Calvin Coolidge, the clinically depressed Calvin Coolidge, was the Calvin Coolidge of, of, of memory, uh, the Calvin Coolidge that everyone remembers, a president who, who did nothing, a president who barely ever spoke. So talk about uh, the symptoms of the depression um, as they were observed by family or staff? Uh, the, uh, according to the people in the White House, according to John Coolidge, according to uh, Grace Coolidge, who, who made comments about her husband, Coolidge, late in his term, had a ferocious temper. This runs contrary to the image that most people have. Most people think that he never spoke, but in point of fact, he spoke a lot. He always spoke a lot, but in the latter portions of his presidency, specifically after his son died and after he was reelected as president, he frequently flew into rages, yelling and screaming at, at staff members, for example, uh, even yelling and screaming at Mrs. Coolidge. He humiliated Mrs. Coolidge in front of uh, guests and in front of staff members uh, at the White House. Before the son died, this sort of thing never happened. Um, uh, he was contained. He was controlled. After the son died, he was uncontrolled and uncontained. As a matter of fact, uh, some of the employees described him as being insane. They actually believed that he was insane. It was said that Calvin Coolidge used to nap a lot in the White House. After Calvin died, he would go to bed earlier and get up later. He's one of the only presidents in American history who, who slept as many hours that he did. And he would also take naps throughout the daytime. Some uh, historians have said that Coolidge spent uh, maybe half of every workday sleeping. In those days, it was just looked on as a sort of a peculiarity of the president. Now we would look at it differently. Now uh, a psychiatrist, for example, would say uh, these are signs of clinical depression. Were there any other events in his life or any other uh, signs that he was inclined toward uh, depression. When he was a child, his mother died, and he was very, very close to his mother. And he writes about uh, walking in the winter, in the freezing uh, Vermont uh, winters, to visit his mother's grave. So uh, he was depressed after his mother died. This was the first depression, perhaps, of his life. And very soon after his mother died, his sister died. And she was his closest companion. She was a young child. Uh, they think maybe she died of appendicitis. 
So he had three significant losses and showed signs of depression each time. He writes in his autobiography that when Calvin Jr. died, the power and glory of the presidency went with him. How, after uh, Calvin Jr. died, did relations between Coolidge and the Congress and the cabinet change, if at all? Uh, the relations with, with, uh, between Coolidge and the cabinet and Coolidge with Congress changed immediately, virtually with the death of Calvin Coolidge Jr. Uh, Coolidge became disinterested. He never gave a State of the Union in person again. The number of press conferences dramatically declined. When he held press conferences, he really couldn't, he really couldn't respond to the questions that the reporters were asking. Uh, and would say to them, I, I, I really don't know enough to respond to your questions. Before the son died, he certainly never did this. Before the son died, the press got the impression that he was knowledgeable, that he was on top of things, that he was, he was the boss. After his son died, the press found him to be distracted and uh, to be really a non-functioning president. So this is really a badly misunderstood president, in your opinion, then? Well, yes. I, I think that Coolidge's reputation as president has been mocked and demeaned by uh, scholars, for example, uh, for years, for, for decades. And I'm certainly not saying that Calvin Coolidge would have been one of, the, one of the greatest presidents if his son hadn't died. But I think he would have been a very different president than the president uh, that we know. If that boy had not died, or if that boy had died much later in his term, I think Coolidge's reputation now as president would have been much better. So, Steve, for several decades following Coolidge's time in the White House, the portrait that really stuck with him was the the last one we just heard described, right? The, yeah portrait of him as an ineffective, passive president. It's in recent years that people have really come to reassess him. Partly that's uh, just a natural thing that happens in history where the people who are down all of a sudden get a, get a different look and the people who are up also get a different look. But the other thing is I think we, we've come to, a, come to a different appreciation about the cycles of the economy. We have booms and busts, that's true, but there's a tendency among historians to ascribe that to political policies, to government policies, when in fact, a lot of the times, the cycles of the economy have more to do with technology. And the 1920s, it turns out, was a period of incredible technological advance and adoption of technology. We're talking about electricity, we're talking about radio, we're talking about the automobile and the telephone. All these things became commonly used by businesses and households during the 1920s. And it was because of that, primarily, that the economy boomed. And because the economy boomed, the stock market boomed. Um, and Coolidge had the sense to basically let it happen, to get out of the way. Certainly in terms of this revisionist approach to Coolidge, uh, Lily, the historian who's most associated with that um, is Coolidge's most recent biographer, uh, a journalist, uh, her name is Amity Slays, um, and she teaches at King's College these days in New York City, where I caught up with her, and we talk mostly about Coolidge's economic policies. All right, let's take a listen. You uh, really caught 
the wave in terms of the new interest in Calvin Coolidge, the revisionist idea that maybe he wasn't um, as do-nothing and as feckless as people thought. Um, this really began uh, with Ronald Reagan. Ronald off. Reagan undug a portrait of Coolidge and put it in this prominent space, the cabinet room. That meant not only he could see it, not only outsiders could see it, but members of the cabinet would see it. But also part of the Reagan, in a sense, resuscitation of Calvin Coolidge was the economic philosophy, um, the philosophy of supply-side economics, that you could cut taxes um, and still maintain revenues, that you could unleash a technological advance and economic growth by deregulation, that government should not be running big deficits and should not have large debt. Coolidge famously said, I am for economy. After that, I am for more economy. He was a notorious tightwad and penny pincher. Coolidge became president in the progressive era. One of the progressive impulses was organization, merit, doing things systematically instead of ad hoc and politically. And in 1921, before Coolidge, Harding led the country in passage of a budget law that aimed to give the executive some more authority over the budget so he could look at it all at once instead of in pieces from mendicants. Because in the old days, each department submitted its budget to the Congress, right? That's right. Each department would submit its budget. The president would see it. Congress would see it. As if, imagine you're a parent and each kid comes to you, long, sad story, and therefore I need a car. I'm going to... And you say, my heart breaks for you. You get a car. And then the next child comes in and pretty soon you've bought more cars than you can afford. So this law unified the budget and created an office, the office of the budget director. Um... He cared um, a lot about cutting spending. He had a weekly meeting, in fact, in which he himself uh, spent, what is it, an hour, an hour and a half every week going over individual spending items. Oh, uh, and Coolidge um, made some theater out of this. You didn't use all of the pencil. Well, the government spends thousands on pencils. I'll, I'll take your stub back. I'll take that half battleship back. I'll take whatever you're not spending. This was a new culture. And what you're really doing is saying no, not only to Congress, but the cabinet. So before the cabinet meeting on Friday, Coolidge had a budget meeting with his budget director. That would, Charles Dawes was the budget director. And then came Herbert Mayhew Lord, also from the military. And they would plan how to say no. As a parent, one knows it's easy to say yes when you're unprepared but hard to say no. In order to say no, you need preparation and knowledge. He would get this briefing before the cabinet meeting so he could say no in the cabinet meeting. That was important to him and it worked. And for this book, we quantified how many times Coolidge met with this gosh darn budget director and it was often, maybe once a week. That's a lot. That meant Coolidge was devoted to the idea of budgeting and he had picked that up in Massachusetts. So what were the kinds of, um, in these meetings with, uh, uh, with Lord and with Dawes, who ultimately became his vice president? Yes. Not, um, and that was a budget symbol. If you run the, the, Mr. Scrooge as vice presidential candidate, what does that tell the country about your intentions? So what are the kinds of things that they would cut? Well, on the minutia level, they cut pencil spending. Let's not telephone veterans. Let's send wires. That's cheaper. So you want to imagine total minutia, uh, sort of beneath the president, quote unquote, and yet the president is is involved. 
Um, and in order to cajole and harass the departments into spending less, they created a 2% club for that department that actually cut its budget 2% above and beyond what the executive was demanding. And after a while, the country was growing. They couldn't get 2% out of the departments anymore, so they went to 1%, 1% club. And then after a while, they couldn't get 1% out of the departments. So New England imagery came to their minds, and they created a woodpecker club for that department that pecks away at its budget here and there. <laughs> Can you imagine today a president who took an hour a week to sit down and figure out ways to eliminate a program, spending, whatever. Um, you can't even imagine it, and yet it might actually be great politics. It's not only great politics, it's great economics. But his goal politically was to cut the government. Today we speak when we cut government of reducing the increase because of the way we budget, which is a little hard on the voter. That makes the voter uh, feel something's not honest and transparent about the whole thing. What, you only reduce the increase when you said cut? Coolidge actually cut. So if you look in the books, you'll see the budget was lower than when he came in, even though the economy grew, the population grew. And the debt was reduced. In fact, he ran a surplus every year that he was president. Yes. Well, I think I would put it this way. Um, Wilson at the end, then Harding, then Coolidge had a campaign to reduce the enormous war debt, which was a huge share of the U.S. economy, something we had never imagined. And Coolidge just kept going on the crusade that Wilson and Harding had started getting the debt. This is the debt down by one third. Then in addition to that, you have the annual deficit, which is operating. And Coolidge had a surplus every year. That was important too. The standing of the U.S. in the world was not so clear at that time. We're, we're oblivious now because it's all about us. We're the currency of the reserve. We're the center of the world. Our deficit doesn't seem to matter, we tell ourselves at least. At that time, had we run wide deficits, we might have lost standing and more money would have gone over to England. So let's talk about taxation, particularly the income tax. The income tax had just come in during the Wilson administration, so it just began in 1915. And in those days, it was just a tax on very rich people. Most people didn't pay the income tax. So then World War I came in, and taxes were raised. Not only um, did the top rate go as high as 70%, but many, many millions of, of households actually wound up paying um, an income tax to pay for the war. So now we're after the war, um, and uh, the Republican stood for reducing those taxes. Talk about um, Coolidge and taxes. What was his attitude toward taxation? He believed that too much taxation was immoral because it stole freedom from people. People don't have a choice about taxation, and that irked him. He said, I want to cut spending so there can be more freedom. It wasn't that it was black and white to Coolidge. He didn't say no taxes at all, but each additional tax that was added or each dollar of tax, he saw a a diminishment of freedom. So he focused on that margin more than many other presidents. But is also concerned that if you cut a rate too low, well, the government might not get money enough to cover the expenses it does have. It might run a deficit. 
Which would be worse. Which would be worse. So taxes are bad, but deficits are Deficits are bad. This is all going on in his head, right? And, and, and if you, in turn, you raise too much money, play with taxes, you get more than you thought. Well, then Congress will spend it and establish new precedents of spending. So imagine the nightmares of Coolidge's sleeping hours, right? right. There are all, the, all these things to avoid, and he wakes up in a sweat. Now, his secretary of, of the Treasury, who he inherited, was Andrew Mellon, who was the third richest man in the United States. Now, Mellon had a slightly different attitude. He called it scientific taxation. And he saw this sort of pragmatically. Let's rationalize taxation so we get the most money with the least pain. What did he mean particularly? He had observed in railroads that if you charged a high freight, then the trains found another path to take. So sometimes you could lower a freight rate and get more traffic, and the new traffic would offset the losses from the lower rate. So Mellon had this idea, scientific taxation. Let's charge what the traffic will bear. Let's tinker with the rate till we find the optimal rate for getting money, because Mellon, as Treasury Secretary, wanted to get money. And this made Coolidge distinctly nervous. Uh, But he went along because Mellon knew what he was doing. So this is exactly the same argument that we have today in terms of budgeting, whereas the Democrats say, well, if you cut taxes, you're going to cut revenue. And they take an almost arithmetic view. If you cut taxes 10%, tax rates, then you're going to get 10% less money. Whereas the Republicans say, no, you need to use dynamic scoring. And you have to see that if you lower the rate, you might get more economic activity and actually not uh, lose revenue or as much revenue as you would think. And how did that turn out in terms of that the- turned out was so that they they precisely ran that experiment. And Mel, this was an ambitious experiment because the income tax was new. The income tax was like a toy everyone wanted to try. It was new and it very quickly was outpacing the old source of revenue, the tariff, tariff, right? So suddenly it was better than the tariff. I don't think anyone had dreamed that it could be a better engine than the tariff for, for revenue, and now it was. So they launched this experiment. Um, so they cut and cut, and as they cut, they got more money. Wow, at least more than they expected. It was a beautiful experiment in what in modern times, but they didn't use this phrase, would be called supply-side economics. The liberal view of Coolidge is that he, like Harding and Hoover together, engaged in the kind of economic policy, pushed the kind of economic policy that caused the stock market to boom and then to crash, and that in effect they caused the Great Depression. Is that right? We should not blame Coolidge for the Great Depression. Just because he preceded it does not mean he caused it. That's a logical fallacy, conceivably. Um, Coolidge believed that the stock market was the business of the stock market and maybe of its regulator, New York State. There was no SEC. There was no SEC at that time. As governor of Massachusetts, he had been involved with a a financial scandal called the Ponzi scheme because Mr. Ponzi was in in Massachusetts some of the time or those who else. He believed these were state uh, state problems. Why did he believe that? Um, 
because he believed in states, but also be- he believed that if the stock market paid for its own trouble itself, uh, it would learn a lesson and wouldn't go near the fire again. But it had to pay from time to time to remember uh, not to overstep or grow bubbles or mm-hmm. whatever. So um, he, the life of Coolidge is about concurrent to the life of the Dow. The Dow Jones Industrial Average came online around the time Coolidge came out of college, the mid-1890s. So in his life, he, he saw the stock market crash a lot. The crash of 1903, the Dow was down 34%. Crash of 1907, Dow was down 41%. No, so but the, the, uh, these, the, the this stock was market a, was very volatile. The stock market, period. in Coolidge's experience, was volatile and it always came back. Um, so he expected, one can argue, um, and there's some evidence for it, that the stock market would crash. It was disturbingly high, particularly to someone like Coolidge. Well, he had expected the stock market to be about 100, and suddenly it was 200. And then um, as he's leaving office, 280, and then 380. So then if that didn't cause the depression, what did cause the depression? I argue the depression was multi-causal. There's the monetary factor that Milton Friedman has spoken of. The Federal Reserve. That the Federal Reserve was too loose and then too tight Mm -hmm. and then insufficiently loose. Um, That's a factor. International um, elements were a factor. We imposed a bad tariff under Herbert Hoover, Smoot Hawley, and that angered Europeans and hurt trade. Uh, and I also argue the busy hand of government generated heavy uncertainty so that business froze. Taxes were very high. They were raised significantly in the Great Depression period under the New Deal. A recovery is like an animal or a human. It makes decisions. Every year from 1929 to 1940, the recovery made a decision to stay away. And each year, it's slightly different reasoning mm-hmm. on the part of the recovery. That doesn't go back to Coolidge, though. It's extremely hard to pin the Great Depression on Coolidge. It's only the power of chronology that makes us want to do it. If you look uh, at Coolidge in totality, cutting of spending, uh, small government, low taxes, particularly on capital, um, he sounds pretty much like today's Republican conservatives. Is Calvin Coolidge the father of modern conservatism? Today's Republican conservatives don't cut government. They might talk about it, but they don't do it. They would like to do it. Maybe it's not their fault. They cannot do it. But Coolidge is more conservative fiscally than the Republican or the Democratic Party. He resisted Washington. One of the questions we have at the Coolidge Foundation is whether Coolidge should have an office in Washington and whether Coolidge would have liked that. The national government, he was suspicious of it. Washington is the city of yes. It's the city of spending. And here he was, the king of no. I'm curious, Steve, what will stick with you or what you've taken away or what you've reevaluated for having gone through this exercise of thinking about Calvin Coolidge? Well, the thing, I guess the thing that sticks to my mind is, so his view of the presidency was actually um, quite limited. I mean, one one way to look at it, the way many people do, is is that um, he just was so anti-government that he, he, he didn't want the president to do anything. 
Um, but I think the, the, the fairer way to think of it is that he was just a very humble man. Um, and he had a, there was a humility about himself that he didn't think the president should do those things because it was very egotistical to do it. Hmm. He had a pretty bad relationship at the end with Herbert Hoover, who he thought was just a terrible egotist. And the reason he thought Hoover was an egotist is that every time there was a problem, Hoover wanted to rush out and come up with some government program for it. Um, and it was mostly a lack of humility as much as anything else that bothered him uh, about that approach to things. Um, I'm sure he would have uh, been horrified by the New Deal, um, but it wasn't as much an ideological thing as it was a sort of temperamental temperamental <laughs> thing that it was it's very unhumble to think that you as president can fix everything mm. you know some things just can't be fixed they have to take their course I mean he once said you know it's a great advantage to a president and a major source of safety to the country for him to know that he's not a great man um, and I, I think that was really his approach um, to the presidency. Very many thanks to this week's guests former Massachusetts governor and presidential candidate Michael Dukakis, Northeastern professor Robert Gilbert, who also wrote the book The Tormented President, and then the biographer Amity Schles, who wrote the book Coolidge. Also, of course, major thanks to Washington Post economics columnist Steve Perlstein for all the interviews and all the research he did for this episode. Thank you, Steve. Next week, we reach another milestone. We reach episode 30, and it's all about Herbert Hoover. <laughs>